If you speak the truth, have a foot in the stirrup. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Sea Realm Podcast. I am your host, KMO, and this is episode number 583, PSYOP Defense, with guest Zach Rodenizer, prepared for release onto the World Wide Web on Monday, October 10th, 2022. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be speaking with therapist Zach Rodenizer. He is in the midst of writing a book about defending oneself against the dark arts of psychological manipulation. And the book has not yet been published. He is still taking feedback on it. So listen to this. And if you have any feedback, well, you can get in touch with Zach. Uh, I'll have a link to his Twitter in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at crealm.com. Now, I used to thank sponsors in this show. I don't anymore because most of the support for the Realm comes from the subscribers to the Realm Vault podcast. But since the last time I put out one of these very episodes, I have received two rather generous donations, one from Ryan F. and the other from Mike G. So thanks to Ryan and Mike. All right, on with the show. Here's my conversation with Zach Rodenizer. You're listening to the Sea Realm Podcast. C stands for consciousness. You are listening to the Sea Realm Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I'm joined by Zach Rodenizer. Zach, good to see you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So you are in the process of writing a book and uh, you have a Substack where it seems like the book is taking shape one chapter at a time. Yeah. So I've written the manuscript, um, but as anyone else who's ever written anything knows, once once you have a manuscript, that doesn't necessarily mean you have a book. And so, um, you know, looking at my options for publishing, I thought I would uh, use the Substack route and just release a little bit at a time and see if I could almost crowdsource the editing process and get feedback from from the masses. And hopefully then I could fine tune it into a product that I'm that I feel is ready to uh, to be published. The title is Psychological Defense, and typically it's publishers to decide on the final titles. But do you have a longer title in mind? Yeah, I've been thinking of uh, maybe psychological self-defense because um, in, in, in the, the, the subtitle would be something along the lines of uh, combating uh, psyops, propaganda, and, and idea pathogens. Very good. But we'll see what comes of it <laughs> when it's done. I saw a tweet, but I think it was a link to a longer piece where you listed, I think, like 15 books that were um, influential to you in the, the creation of this project. Yeah. And, and it wasn't the exhaustive list. I, I, I just, um, you know, I, I'm pretty new to social media and specifically Twitter and, and how to best get your message out. So I was like, I don't, I don't think I'm going to send out like 40, 40 resources that I've been reading. So I, I thought I'd stick with the 10 or to 15 or so most powerful um, sources, because it all boils down for me that, um, you know, I, I consider myself a fairly intelligent person, but I, I constantly get things wrong. Um, my media diet was not um, informing me enough. <laughs> and I was getting so many things wrong that I just, I, I just needed to do better research, I thought. And as I started doing that, I thought, well, 
I need to help other people do this too. Because uh, I'm actually a psychologist and I help people or I try to anyways. And so many of the people that I'm working with these days are coming in with like this existential depression, this this pessimism where they think just like the world is is so evil, there's no point to even live in it. And that's the other part of this uh, of this book is I want to try and help them see that, you know, yes, things are difficult and there's a lot of... <laughs> a lot of trouble, let's say, but there are narratives out there that can help you battle against the narratives that are trying to get us to just quit. You know, I do believe that there are narratives by very powerful people that want us to just give up and that that's in their interest. And so, yeah, I, I, as I, as I started to look into, okay, what, what helps us find the truth? I also was looking into well, what helps us helps us find not necessarily the truth, but the narratives, the stories that can help us thrive instead of just uh, being consumers in you know in this quasi totalitarian setting that we're living in. Excellent. Well, I have to tell you, not only am I very familiar with the uh, the extreme pessimism that you're talking about, it's it's something that. <laughs> I participated in for a long time. And you know, you talk about you think you're smart, but you, you get things wrong all the time. Well, smart people are really good at defending their worldviews against arguments and evidence to the contrary. So being smart is absolutely no defense against being manipulated, or being taken in by either, you know, as you describe a psyop, like a deliberate uh, propagation of a harmful narrative, or one that's just sort of emergent, because, you know, ideas, um, they seem to take on a life of their own, mm -hmm. you know, they have an agenda of their own, which is the same, this is, you know, Richard Dawkins territory, the, the agenda of the idea or the meme is to propagate itself into the future. And, you know, to do that, they they prey upon our psychologically, um, you know, our, our evolutionarily evolved psychological buttons and predilections and vulnerabilities. So that's been happening. You know, people have been participating in creating mental viruses and, you know, uh, mimetic pathogens for centuries. But in the 20th century, uh, particularly in the intelligence communities, humans got really deliberate and systematic about it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the first part of your book references psyops, and that's that's what I'm talking about here. So let me turn it over to you and have you talk about psyops. Yeah, so this is a term that as I was going about my, my daily curious life, um, it was a term that I didn't quite understand. And, and um, so really, a lot of the beginning of my book is me coming in uh, finding out what a PSYOP even is. So I, I don't want to give the impression that I am like the expert on psychological operations. I'm just someone who is very curious about it. And, um, and so, and I wrote down some of my ideas as far as what I, what I came up with so far, but, but yeah, so psychological operations or PSYOPs is, is targeted, um, attempts to control and, and influence what your opponent is thinking and what your opponent will do. Sun Tzu said the most effective warrior is the one that can win without unsheathing his sword or without drawing any bloodshed. Ever since war was a thing, that's that's been part of the plan is to 
come up with some psychological strategies that will get your opponent to give up or turn on their allies or be misdirected or something to that extent. As I learned what psyops were, it started to ring true as to what's happening, you know, in in media today and and um, online and and with with so many uh, so much misinformation and so forth. So uh, the, the the term itself, I, I don't stay in the military sphere too long in this book, only enough to describe what it is, a few examples of how it's happened, only to draw the parallel as. To, to, to demonstrate like, hey, look, everyone, this is what's happening to us now. Corporations do this. Political parties do this. Um, social movements do this, right? It's, it's not just a military phenomenon anymore. Well, let me have you flesh that out with a few examples that started off in the realm of the intelligence uh, arena and then moved to the corporate arena. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, there, there was examples of, say, in World War II, the Nazi Germans tried to send letters and pamphlets and things to get the French to turn on their British allies. Because as we know from history, uh, the, the French and the British did not have a very long time being allies, you know, and so they tried to play on those natural divisions. And so they would send out propaganda and, and, and targeted psyops to try and get the French to realize that, you know, the English were being sent to more favorable fronts and getting more provisions and so forth to try and sow discord between the French and the British. Ultimately, that campaign was not that successful. But in return, you know, the British, the British would also send letters in German to, to make it look like it was a, you know, a, an actual a German correspondence that was found. And it would be of, say, like, Austrian generals making it look like they're living the high life while the German commoner is starving to death, right? To try and make them believe that their superiors were hoarding all the resources while they starved, right? Those are just little examples, but any time that you can, you can divert hatred is what often will be the term that's often used in, in PSYOP literature. But if you can divert the hatred away from yourself and, and get your opponent to live in a universe where they think that their ally hates them or or that may, maybe maybe their opponent isn't so bad or anything like that though that would be the case of, of a psyop later on in history you know there was and i'm forgetting his name um and i don't want to waste the time looking for him but there was a uh, that the highest ranking russian dissident uh soviet dissident uh, in the i believe it was in the 70s uh, or maybe in the 80s he he said you know like the, the Soviets, like any anytime you see peace efforts uh, and peace movements, and I'm, I, I consider myself a pacifist in, in a lot of sense, so I'm not against a peace movement. But when you see a peace movement, you best be sure that the opponent is going to do everything they can to raise the prominence of this peace movement. So, for example, in the Vietnam War, this Russian dissident said that, you know, the, the, the Soviet PSYOP was to foment the anti-war sentiments in Vietnam, for example, right? And from there, you start to see shifts from just military operations to more just cultural ones. Maybe the Soviets were behind it, or maybe they just fomented it. But ultimately, the, the, 
the popular culture starts to generate narratives that benefit a certain side in a conflict, right? And my argument is that in our day to day, I mean, you can, th th obviously there's some clear caveats to this, but for the most part, we live in a very peaceful society in the Western world, but the war keeps going on, but the war is more a war of ideas, a war of culture. And to this day, still, you can see particularly that, um, messages and narratives will be woven by media to benefit one side of, of this cultural divide similar to in world war ii or in vietnam or what have you so i don't we don't have to get into cultural examples just yet but um you go down a rabbit hole essentially because anytime there has been war there there has been psyops there's been psychological operations involved that's one of the things that i learned it's not just a technique it like it is the war <laughs> you know it's the whole point is to try and get your opponent to give up and to bring it back to, to, to mental health, that's what I'm, that's, that's what motivated me to start reading this. Cause I'm like, I feel like there are people trying to get me to give up, you know? When do you feel that most? When do you feel that most acutely? I think, um, I think a lot of, and you can, you can throw this, I think you can get this from the right and the left politically. But there's a lot of messaging that says <clears throat> that we live in a time that's just like completely, not just evil, but, but almost like there's no point, right? There's no point to moving forward. We are in a um, crisis of meaning. And so you have very, very prominent and, and pro um, powerful movements that basically say, we're screwed. You know, we are evil. The Western world is, is, um, they're just oppressors, right? Um, there's, there's nothing worth moving forward and being creative or having kids or, you know, the, the, the environment is, uh, you know, with climate change is so bad that we're all going to be underwater in 10 years anyway, stuff like that. And I go like, that's in my world, that is obviously not true. You know, not that I'm denying climate science. I'm just saying we're going to be fine <laughs> in the short term, at least. Right. But the message is we're doomed. And I just refuse to believe it. Well, good. <laughs> I encourage you to reject that, that notion. <laughs> um, in the comments here, Oswald Spengler says, is doomerism a psyop? So I, I mentioned that I have participated in, um, you know, in propagating some of these messages of doom. And for many years in this podcast, I was very, very devoted to interviewing people on the topic of peak oil. And, uh, you know, this is a, a narrative about how industrial society is completely de dependent on oil and that as soon as the the demand exceeds the supply. There's going to be this cascading failure of critical systems, which will just take us back to the dark ages overnight. And, you know, the, the world is more complicated than that. Yeah, we are dependent on oil. This, this is a fossil fuel driven industrial civilization, but it's not going to fail, you know, like, uh, like a Jenga tower falling. That's it's, it's a much more complex, robust system with a lot of different moving parts and a lot of ways to adapt. Um, and, 
you know, the, the collapse can happen over the course of a couple of centuries and people who are not really interested in the topic won't even know about it. They'll just be living their lives. That will be the context in which their lives play out. And so, yeah, a few years ago, I, I came to see that the people who were seeking out reinforcement, you know, for their commitment that industrial civilization will soon collapse and there is no point to trying to be successful within it or to, you know, achieve the traditional life goals that are agreed upon by the larger society because this is all going away. Um, I, I came to see the psychological dimensions of that and I basically made a public pronouncement that I'm, I'm done with it. I'm, you know, not only do I not engage with it, but I'm certainly not going to provide a platform for it or participate in articulating that message. And um, the audience withered on the vine. Let me tell you that the audience that is still with me is uh, the hardcore, you know, KMO supporters, because the people who were just here for the doom, they have gone elsewhere because there's always somebody preaching it, you know, and there's always an audience that's hungry for it. So, so that's, maybe a bit more, a, a bit too much uh, on me. Let's, let's get back to what you're talking about. Well, I think, I think someone who is mentally healthy, part of it is fearing the right thing. And so I, I think there are some doomer um, outcomes, uh, scenarios that are more likely, you know, I, I'm, I'm nervous about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now. And Putin's posturing with, um, even mentioning that, you know, he'd be willing to go nuclear if X, Y, and Z happened. And, you know, I'm hoping he's bluffing, but, um, but I don't know. And so that, that scares me. And so I'm, I'm, I, I want to make sure that I'm prepared for that. You know, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's healthy to be prepared for, for some worst case scenarios we saw with COVID and everything, how, um, you know, some of us weren't as prepared to hunker down for a while that, than others were. And um, so th there's a, there's a healthy fear there, but um, if it keeps us from living our lives, you know, I, I go back to COVID, like I think there's a healthy fear of a pathogen like COVID, but there's a lot of people who are to this day so afraid of it that they're not living anymore. And I, I think COVID sticking around so I don't know what they're going to do if they're still waiting for COVID to be entirely entirely eradicated uh, before they step outside. You know, um, it, it's it's a balancing, it's a calibrating of what we are afraid of, and and how much of that is is healthy concern, and how much of it is is um, keeping us from from living. We may have a slight difference of opinion here in that, to me, healthy fear is a very small set and yeah. it is confined to the things that will keep you alive for the next 30 seconds mm. where if you if you were to take on a more blase attitude you would be killed you know it's that fight or flight oh my god i'm about to die and then suddenly your system is flooded with adrenaline and you you do something that keeps you alive that's a healthy fear beyond that fear is crippling it is never a good thing to cultivate particularly in a long-term, you know, particularly as an element of one's worldview. Oh, I, I would agree with you on that. Like, I don't, I don't think like going back to the Putin example, it's not going to do us that much good to stoke a bunch of fear. Uh, if, if, if anything, that's what he would want. He wants us to be so afraid that we just give him what he wants. Right. Um, but I'm just thinking like, I'm, I'm afraid enough that I'm going to, um, 
you know, stock up my shelves a little bit, my food storage and have a plan in case things get really bad. And then from there I'll go, okay, I'm, I'm now prepared as much as I can be. Now I can't worry about it as much. Right. You're not as prepared as you can be, but you've reached the level of diminishing returns yeah. where, you know, if once you've got your, your pantry stocked, you've got your, you know, potassium iodide tablets on hand and, you know, you're, you've got the, the plastic and the duct tape ready to seal up the windows. And, you know, you've got, you've talked maybe to some neighbors or some friends and, uh, you know, you, you've got a, a local sort of coordinated preparedness in place. If you push on past that, then you're definitely into the territory of diminishing returns where, you know, the more energy you give to it, the more you're taking away from the things in your life that you absolutely have to maintain, you know, if you are going to have a successful life going forward in a non-collapse or a non-nuclear you know nuclear apocalypse scenario. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, that law of diminishing returns. Like there's only so much we can do. And and as you as you point out, there hypothetically there are more things we could do, but there's not as much point to that. But um, but yeah, I, I would I'm always concerned. That that's one of the things that I've learned is is when you're trying to calibrate your appropriate level of fear or what have you, um, it's you, you you look at who who benefits from my fear. Right. And, um, and, and how much do they benefit? Qui bono? Always the question to ask. Right. And, uh, and so anyone that's telling me I should be afraid, um, I'll listen to them. Um, but quite often, quite often they're trying to sell something themselves or something along those lines. So I, uh, you, you have to bring up your guard as much as possible. Still, still let whatever they, cause I'm sure there's a, there's an element of, of usefulness in whatever it is they're saying. You want to have your defenses strong enough so that you can, the information can come in, but you can block the, the, the pathogen that that's within that information. That's the tricky part. You know, the best propaganda and the best deception is going to be composed of 95% true statements. Yeah. Right. I yeah. think they call it great, great propaganda, right? It's, and, and, or, or there's the, um, the, the Steve Bannon approach of there's almost the opposite where it's like, I'm going to throw so much, so much noise at you that it's going to be hard to, to, to figure out like, where's, where's the real message here. Right. I, I think that was Bannon's quote is let's, you just uh, inundate them with shit. I think it was, that's how they put it. Right. But, um, have you actually listened to much of, uh, Steve Bannon's war room radio? I haven't. No, you you might be surprised at the the quality of the content. It is considerably higher than you know the the left leaning blue tribe in the U.S. and Canada would you know have you believe. Well, and see, and and I appreciate that. And that's that's the other thing that I try to focus on in my book is you know a lot of what I realize, a lot of the information that I was consuming was secondhand. Right. Like, um, I grew up, I, I loved uh, late night talk shows. So I would listen to, I would watch John Stewart and Stephen Colbert and Saturday night live and stuff like that. And, and when I was in my twenties, I thought, cause there was, um, there was a, I remember there was a study that said that people who got their news from John Stewart and Stephen Colbert were actually more informed on the news than people who watched the news. Right. 
in in the aughts, I think that was probably the case. Yes. Now it's not. <laughs> not now. No. <laughs> but so they would always reference, you know, Fox News and how terrible they are and how biased they were. And, yada, yada. and that was my only exposure to Fox News. Now, I don't watch any television news anymore because I don't have TV. But, um, but what I realized is I had this, and I'm sure Fox News is full of mistakes and, and all, you know, there, there was some credit to that. But I was only, my, my opinion of Fox News was entirely in relation to how it was filtered through me through Stephen Colbert and John Stewart, they only showed me the the egregious examples of their bias where I could imagine there was a lot of stuff on Fox News that had value, right? And so to your point about Steve Bannon, like, yeah, I, I actually can't say I've watched or listened much of him. Being Canadian, I don't, I, I don't know if it really mattered to me as much, but but we see it in the media with Donald Trump all the time too. Like, like they would, I mean, he's, he, he says and does enough that you could legitimately criticize, but often the criticisms of Donald Trump are, they never show his exact quote. They never show him saying the exact thing. It's always someone else's interpretation of what he said. Or it's, it's a carefully uh, edited montage of his most provocative sayings. Right. Right. Yeah. Which he's got enough of, but so, yeah, so, uh, you know, this is obviously not news to maybe you and a lot of your listeners, but that was one thing that I had to remind myself is if I heard something, I needed to go to the source, you know, that, that kid, um, Nicholas Sandman, who was on, uh, who, who was, uh, do you remember that one a few years ago where he, it was, it was a high school band trip in DC and there was, um, a native American man who was drumming in his face and, and, and he, this kid looked very smug and, and it looked like it was a group of kids um, harassing this Native American man. But when when you look at the direct source, you look at the video, it was the man who came up to the kid and started drumming his face aggressively. And the kid was, I, th I think, pretty scared and stuff. So I, I think that kid, I don't know his name, but I think he marshaled considerable and commendable self-restraint. And that smug look on his face was him keeping himself impassive, not saying anything, not reacting, right. not provoking. Um, and, you know, I, I remember that clearly because there were people on Twitter who were literally calling for the blood of those kids. They wanted them, you know, physically, savagely assaulted, you know, for for their temerity, uh, for, you know, basically not being the Native American guy with the drum in that, you know, in that encounter. And psychologist Paul Bloom, he wrote a book called Against Empathy, and he talks about how when it comes to inciting violence, you know, a lot of people think it's these very hate-filled messages that get people all riled up, but often it's someone who can weaponize our own empathy. That is the most effective way to incite violence, right? The anti-Semitic material that gets the most play and gets the most reach is not the all Jews are bad and there's, you know, they're inferior. That's, it's not that it's the, they're oppressors. Right. And, and they use examples of the Rothschilds and the Sacklers or whatever. And, and they'll, and they'll talk about how this, you know, the conspiracy of Jews taking over the world. That's the, that's the anti-Semitic material that gets the most play, you know, and it's when you turn someone into the bad guy, a lot, a lot of, the material that I use for my book has to do with professional wrestling because the, there's, there's such a parallel, right. Where, um, you create this heel 
that's just so awful. Like you're, you're telling the fans, this is the person you're supposed to, to, to boo. And, and you don't, you, you do it by having the heel attack someone who's defenseless. I love it. That's a wrestling term, by the way, the heel. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Eric Weinstein has, has a whole theory about how the world is now kayfabe, right? And, and, and that, that uh, there's, there's a section in my book about. Go ahead and define that. So kayfabe, kayfabe is a old carny term. Uh, and, and it's essentially the, the idea that, um, you know, everyone in the business knows that wrestling is fake, but that's the swear word in wrestling world. You don't call it fake. Um, but kayfabe is the universe in which everyone kind of believes, you know, they know that it's fake, but they're, but in order to keep it going, they have to play into the, into the fantasy, right? Because even fans know that it's fake, but it's fun because you can suspend your, your, your disbelief for a moment and just kind of get lost in the performance, right? Eric Weinstein talks about how ever since the 1970s, the actual economic growth has been stagnating in the Western world. And the elites are, um, you know, we, we love the idea of economic growth. It's, it's our religion essentially. And so the elites had to create a universe where it looked like there was growth, even though there's not. His argument is that the elites in order to demonstrate the growth, in order for them to have growth, they, in, they're not growing the pie. So they have to take some the you know the portion of the rest of the pie that other people have and that's why you know you're seeing income inequality and, and so and so forth but they are in charge of the messaging though so they get to decide what's an acceptable message and and what what eric weinstein calls are the troglodytes or the deplorables you know if you have this if you have a deplorable belief then you are you are relegated to the to the corners of society or whatever and you can tell, you can just see it so plainly, which, which opinions are presented in media as if you would have to be an idiot to believe them, even though they're true. And so the PSYOP ends up being, Weinstein calls them the rent-seeking elite, but the rent-seeking rent elite get the, I think he calls them the, the dupes, the intelligent dupes, which is the media types who, who spread these ideas and they control the narrative and and yeah, and, and anyone who deviates on COVID or on, I don't know, what's the, on the environment or, 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 or whatever it is, you get packaged and displayed as a, as a buffoon, right? And that's, that's where you start to see the, the, what he calls the K-fabrification, pardon me, where it looks more like pro wrestling. It's, you know, when, when you're listening, when you're watching stone cold steve austin versus the rock in in kayfabe world you're going oh yeah stone cold and boo the rock or whatever vice versa but the both of them are laughing to the bank because as long as they can get you booing for someone and cheering for someone else they're rich right so the media the the elites want us booing for someone and cheering for someone else as long as we're not paying attention to what's actually the case, which is the fact that they are hoarding the resources and controlling the narrative to make anyone else who disagrees with them, you know, uh, a troglodyte. You're listening to the Sea Realm Podcast with your host, KMO.
You're listening to the C-Rome Podcast, and I'm speaking with Zach Rodenizer, who is a, um, a therapist, did you say? Psychotherapist in Alberta, Canada. And we're talking about psychological defense. And in the comments here, we've got several comments from Oswald Spengler, and one of them compares psychological defense to the notion of defense against <clears throat> to the notion of defense against the dark arts from J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter series. Uh, I, that's that is an amusing comparison to me. Is there is it apt at all? I think so. So I'm not as familiar with Harry Potter. That's on the list of books to read. What? My kids. I know. Well, I mean, I'm <laughs> I, I'm, I'm familiar, but I'm uh, I'm waiting for my kids to be a little older so I'll so I can read it to them. I haven't read it myself, and so I've kind of waited. They are marvelous books. I've heard. I have read them and enjoyed them. Thoroughly. Yeah. So, um, but I kind of, I kind of understand the premise, and so yeah, I, I, as a metaphor, I think that's, I think that's exactly the case because, um, what is, I mean, what is a psyop, and what is, you know, um, just a pro-social narrative that's that's, uh, um beneficial uh is really up to whoever's in power that that's the other thing that i found in my research is like you, you see terms like like um propaganda and news or <clears throat> cult and religion or right it, the only difference is who's in power and who gets to define the term so um so yeah i think it's important to learn the dark arts of psyops uh, not so that you can use them against people, but so that you can recognize them and and have defenses against them. Right. So early on in the conversation, I mentioned that you know not all harmful mental constructs are deliberately created by somebody. A lot of them arise spontaneously. You know, they're they're wild grown, and sort of like weaponizing a virus that already exists. A, a smart propagandist is going to find the uh, you know the wild grown just naturally propagating mind viruses and adapt them you know rather than try to create one from scratch mm -hmm. but either way whether it is uh just you know an opportunistic construct that has arisen spontaneously or if it is something that has money behind it uh, one thing that i've realized one should look out for is if you start using pejoratives to describe people who hold a different belief system and that that's a regular part of your vocabulary, you have definitely turned over your mental workings to the propagation of a harmful mind virus, be it, you know, constructed or, or naturally evolved. I agree. I agree. There's, there's a, there's a section I wrote about profanity and how um, what we see as profane uh, has a lot to do with, um, yeah, like what we consider acceptable and not in our society. And a lot of it is it, it's used to keep certain people down, keep certain nar narratives down. Um, you know, I touch on some pretty controversial topics, um, but if you think of like the most, the most offensive word in the English language right now is the N word. Right. It's a word that even the most profane comedian is afraid to say. And you can I won't get into the history of it, but if you look at the linguistic history of that word, it became a pejorative that people who had malintentions started to use. And that's why it is profane now. 
you know, in my world, in psychology, we use, and I don't even know how acceptable this word is now, but we, we use the word retard for a purpose, right? But because it was started, because it was used to denigrate people, it has now become an unacceptable word, right? So, so much of us, of the psyops, and I agree with you on your point that it's not necessarily like originally plotted often. It's a natural occurrence. It's a wave that people can now use for their purposes, right? So a lot of the psyops in our culture wars is turning a, a term, like a, one thing that happens is when people start to define themselves as something, the political enemy or the cultural enemy wants to turn that something into a swear word, right? The term woke is a good example. Woke 10 years ago meant, you know, people who, who, who were, whether you agreed with it or not, but they were awakened to social injustices or whatever. They saw it where other people didn't. Now, if you call someone woke, it's because they're being silly, you know, and it's, it's a pejorative. That's a polite way to put it. <laughs> right. But the opposite, like, the, so a lot of, a lot of folks, maybe two, three years ago wanted to be like, they wanted to figure out what the opposite of woke was. And so you see the term based, right? I think it was maybe James Lindsay and some of those guys who came up with the term based. That makes sense, you know, based in reality. But now it's the same thing, you know, the, 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 the enemies of the based turned the, you know, used, used propaganda essentially in the culture wars to make the term based be um, uh, correlative with, with being, I don't know, bigoted or something like that. Like to the point where, nobody wants to, or very few people want to claim any type of title for themselves anymore which i think is a really bad thing because whatever you claim yourself to be someone is going to find a reason to denigrate it or use it as a pejorative that's low ball right that's 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 dirty dirty boxing right uh, i'll tell you another pejorative word which really shouldn't be um, it, it doesn't rise to the level of, you know, the N-word, a word I actually used to have the temerity to say on this podcast, and now it's too hot. So <laughs> I will say the uh, the dreaded, you know, replacement phrase, the N-word, but a word that I hear and see thrown around as an insult and nobody wants to be associated with it is normie. You know, a normie is somebody who doesn't share mm. your very specialized belief system. They're just using the off-the-shelf normal belief system of, you know, people just going about their lives. And that's an insult now. Hmm. Yeah. Who, who wants to be a normie? <laughs> I don't want to be a normie. <laughs> it's like sheeple. I think that has, yeah, that has something to do. So another theme that came up for me as I did my research is this natural um, tension that we all have between our our desire to be a part of a community like we, we want to be a part of the collective. We don't, we're, we're social animals, but we also want to be unique and free and, and, um, and that sort of thing. And so there's always this, this internal battle within us of like, I want to fit in, but I also need to be myself. And um, these days, especially with young people, young people want to be subversive in some way, you know, it, it's rock and roll. It's, it's, it's whatever, but we don't have a monoculture anymore to which young people can rebel against, you know? And, um, and so when there's not a monoculture to rebel against, 
and there's pros and cons of that. Um, they find every way possible to try and to try and um, portray themselves as subversive. And and yeah, I, I think being normal, whatever that's supposed to mean, is now it's just like I can't I can't um, associate myself with the norm or the the status quo. That would just be awful, right? So, so you see a lot of young people who are middle class, white, um, cisgendered, and straight, but but they don't like that. Like they need to. It's so based on identity these days as well, too, right? They have to identify with something else. And so, quite often, what you see actually is young people um, because they have because on paper they're entirely privileged because identity is is so important these days you'll see young people who on paper who on paper are, are quite privileged but they'll find um, often their mental health to be the the marker of you know the, the evidence that they're not a normie that is the last thing i'd ever want to be right and so it's, it's just interesting to see how um Without a monoculture to rebel against, there's now a thousand different ways to skin the cat, so to speak. And young people especially want so badly to be unique and to find their own little corner of subversives that um, it's it's hard to, for them to figure out how to balance the collective versus the individual needs. And that gets taken advantage of. Not just for young people. <laughs> Not just young people, yeah. Hopefully the older one is, the, the more experience one has to draw upon to recognize, you know, for self-examination and, um, and course correction. But it's not automatic. It doesn't just necessarily come with age. No, it doesn't. But hopefully, yeah, as you said, hopefully there's some wisdom in time that we realize, you know, I, I'm of the frame of mind now that, if somebody wants to, I don't know, identify or, or, or if, if it's really important to them that the, I don't know, the earth is flat, like I, 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 I should always be free to disagree, but I'm starting to care less about other people's weird ideas. Um, if, if, if you can find community in your flat earth group or whatever, all the power to you. You know, because I'm I'm much more concerned about mental health, um, and 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 allowing people or not not like I'm in charge, but um, in, encouraging people to find community. I think that's way more important than you know, as long as your flat Earth group doesn't I don't know rob you blind or you know get you to do something completely immoral. I'm fine with you just being you. Better flat Earth than Scientology. It's funny that was the other example I was going to come up with and, um, on cults and religions and in groups and so forth. And yeah, as I the more I read about it, the, the harder it was to really define what a cult was. You know, and um, I think Robert Anton Wilson said that a religion is a cult that is big and powerful enough that you have to leave it alone. Yeah, or yeah. Some, you know, words to that effect. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So it's it's. It's basically the same thing. It's just it's 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 a religion without without power, <laughs> without cultural power anyway. So, so yeah, it's difficult because 
once again, we, we, th there is a part of us that wants to conform at least to a, 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 sm a small group, you know, and is there a certain level of conformity that's healthy, even if, you know, at its core, you go like, I don't know if I really buy into all of this, but overall, like I'm a part of a community, a, a religious community that, you know, I'm not, I'm not totally bought into everything, but they're open-minded enough to allow me to be a part of it knowing that I don't buy into everything. So that's, that, that tells me I've got a good group going. They don't need me to buy in a hundred percent, you know, so I get to benefit from the strength of the pack, but I also am allowed to think for myself and express myself, even when I go against the pack to a certain extent, I'm sure there's some things I could say where they go, Hey, you know what? I don't think you're really a part of us anymore. I'm, I'm sure there's something I could do that would get me kicked out, but you know, I think that's, I think that's a big part of the, the defense against, against bad ideas and, and pathogens and propaganda and, and psyops, right? Like it's, it's finding your comfortable balance between the collective and, and your individuality. Yes. And, and just a complete rejection of the collective to the point where the only way you can even be comfortable with your place in relation to it is to say that it's doomed and it's about to, you know, crash and burn. You've got to be able to, you know, exist in society. Your baseline, uh, I mean, it can, you can be dysfunctional if you want to for a time at least. Uh, but, you know, your, your baseline in a healthy life simply can't be that society is irredeemably evil and I'll have no part of it because you do have a part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, and that, that is the core question. I mean, I've spent years studying and the last year writing about it. And I, I don't know if I've come to a clear conclusion yet. Um, I, I have for myself, but it's hard to help other people who are just caught in that cycle of there's no point. It's all pointless. And, and um, near the end of my book, that's, that's where I'm still struggling is, is I, I want so badly to just like inject. I almost, it's funny. It makes me, my compassion makes me want to be a, a propagandist, you know, <laughs> but like, but in a, but I, but in a good way, like you can trust me, you can trust my propaganda. But in a good way, it's okay when I do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I want people to believe X, Y, and Z because I believe that there are, there, there are certain beliefs that you're better off believing. Right. And maybe they're true. Maybe they're not. Well, that's, that's not even like from a scientific perspective, that's not even controversial. You know, people who take an optimistic worldview have better life outcomes. Yeah. That's just demonstrated. I mean, you know, pessimism is, is self-reinforcing I mean, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, on a personal level. Yeah. But so then you start getting into like red pill, blue pill stuff because, because pessimists also tend to um, be more accurate. As far as, you, you know, what's well, yeah, we're not talking about, you know, um, verisimilitude, you know, between your belief system and the real world. We're, we're talking about living a good life yeah, and operating in society and, um, you know, being a productive member of it. Uh, yeah. Uh, the pessimist. I mean, we're all going to die. And this civilization will at some point come to an end and our species will in time go extinct. These things will happen. Mm -hmm on some timeline. Uh, so if you, if you just devote yourself to that point of view, this is all temporary. 
Therefore, it is useless. It is meaningless. There's no point. I mean, those last three, it's, it's useless. It's meaningless. There's no point. Don't follow from this is temporary. Mm-hmm. Life is tem- temporary. Life is ephemeral. You know, life is transitory, but it doesn't mean there's no point. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't mean that you shouldn't make the most of it. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the existentialist thinkers thought that um, it, it's meaningful because it's temporary. You know, a life that went on forever, that would be the meaningless life. Because I don't know, maybe I've got maybe a thousand years in me of, of a good life, but I think eventually I'd get bored or something, you know. So the fact that the party ends, that, that actually makes it way more meaningful. And this goes back to psychological self-defense as well. Boundaries and limits help you define something and see what it actually is. And you can't, you can't be everything and, and things don't last forever. If, if that's the way your mind is thinking, then um, it's very easy to lose the sense in anything, right? So if there are boundaries and limits, they seem restrictive, but they actually help us see what is and what isn't, right? Oswald Spengler in the comments asks, could it be argued that any ism is a psyop? Yeah, I I think while I was writing, I was really sensitive to if it was coming off that, if I was calling something a psyop, that meant it was inherently evil, because that's kind of what it sounds like. But I think there are a lot of isms that can point you in a certain direction, and that direction might be good. But it's, it's uh, what do they say? The difference between medicine and poison is dosage, right? And so I, I get a lot of benefit from all sorts of isms. But if I'm going to completely dedicate myself and lose myself in an ism, you know, and in too much of collective ideology, then I run risk of, of getting manipulated and, and controlled, right? So I, I'm trying to get into a place where I don't denigrate people just because they believe they are liberal or conservative or whatever ism is theirs, you know, I want to be able to see it and go like, I, I see the value in being a conservative. Um, I also see the slippery slope of, of where, what it could do in the extremes. So I, I think a, a healthy person would, could jump fully into an ism, but still have his wits about him in order to see how much would be too far, how much would be too much no ism covers everything so it's like okay i like this ism but what what are the blind spots to it and how how can i keep myself from uh or how can i make sure that i am aware of those as well here's a few isms i like humanism universalism you know you could say liberalism there there are aspects of uh, the liberal you know particularly a classical liberal ideology that i i find very yeah, John Stuart Mill. Yeah, I mean, utilitarianism, you know, speaking of John Stuart Mill. Um, but libertarianism, you know, I, I identify with that. Uh, individual liberty and rights and responsibilities. Is that a psyop? I, I don't think so. It could be. And to your point, Camo, isms and, and waves of, of ideas occur and you will get um, opportunists 
who can use it as a psyop, I think is the thing. I don't, I don't think the ism is itself a psyop, but it's a vehicle for psyops. I have to think for a second off the top of my head, but I'm certain there's people who have used libertarianism as a vehicle to mislead and lead people to negative outcomes, you know, like, cause no, no ism is perfect. And, and you, there's a dark side, just like how we all have our own dark side. Every ism has its own dark version, right? Um, you can make the argument that there is some level of, I don't know, collective intervention or government intervention that's required and maybe strict libertarianism would be against it. You don't have to squint very hard to find the dark side of libertarianism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So once again, it's, it's, it all boils down to balance and nuance and, and, and calibration, right? Like if I find myself inclined to libertarianism, let's say, but I'm still aware of what it would look like if it goes too far or maybe a certain scenario where it's not going to be the best ideology to guide me or to guide everyone else or whatever. Like I, I think it was Nassim Taleb that said globally I'm libertarian and, and nationally I'm conservative and at the state level I'm liberal and at the city level I'm progressive and at the family level, I'm a socialist, <laughs> you know, and there might be certain scenarios where you see how like this ideology fits here. Great, but maybe not so much in this other scenario. Right on. Well, Zach, we've been on for nearly an hour, so um, we're going to have to draw it to a close, but I've enjoyed this conversation and I would like to keep up with your book as it takes shape. And um, if not before, certainly, you know, when it's, it's published in some form, come back and we'll talk about it again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. On the Sea Realm podcast, a mind that is stretched by a new experience can never go back, never go back never to go its back, old dimensions. Back. That was Zach Rotenizer, and as I said at the beginning, I'll have a link to his Twitter account in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at c-realm.com. And if you're going to type c-realm.com, you might as well put a KMO at in front of it and send me a piece of email. <laughs> or you can leave comments for Zach on the entry for this episode on crealm.com or on Patreon. You can find me on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash KMO. All right. Well, I am putting this episode out. Um, one, because I haven't put out one of these free episodes in a long time. But two, there's a big, big change coming in my life. Right now, I am living in Berryville, Arkansas, in the house that my grandfather built. And I am about to take a Greyhound bus from Fayetteville, Arkansas to Reno, Nevada. I'm going to be doing seasonal work at the North Star Ski Resort. Uh, it's on the California side of Lake Tahoe. I'm going to be snowmaking, which is, if you're a skier, you might have a vague notion of what that is. Uh, but snowmaking is done at night when the skiers are not on the slopes. So it's kind of an unsung profession, but um, pays okay. I'm told it is a fun job, although physically demanding. But I'm going to do that for a season. So if you are interested in following my progress, I would suggest checking in with me on either YouTube or Instagram. And I will have links to both of those in the show notes for this episode on crealm.com. Or if you just type in to Google KMO YouTube, I'm sure you'll find me. Now, if it seems like I don't put out podcasts very often, free podcasts, well, that's a mistaken impression. I put out a lot of podcasts, but most of them are to be found over at padverb.com. That's P-A-D 
V-E-R-B. There are 20 episodes of the Padverb podcast waiting for you archived there. So do me a favor and, you know, if I may be so bold, do yourself a favor and go to padverb.com, find the Padverb podcast and check it out. There are some good conversations there. And I know that most of you are not listening to them. (laughs) So seriously, if you like the C-Realm podcast, you are quite likely to enjoy the Padverb podcast as well. All right, that's all. I leave for Reno in just a couple days. If you live in or near Reno, Nevada, uh, I'm going to have some time to kill this weekend. Get in touch with me. KMO at crealm.com. That's the letter C and then a dash and then R-E-A-L-M. Crealm.com. All right, I'm out. Wish me safe passage and stay well. <laughs>